0: ON THE TOP OF THE TOWER This time the Count appeared surprised. He pushed back his decanter and his glass of sherry and said, What's this you're telling me? I had no idea that we had any such neighbors. Renin shook his head and smiled. I should be more inclined to believe, sir, that you are not very eager to admit any relationship between yourself and the unknown owner of the property. Then he's not a respectable man? The man, to put it plainly, is a murderer. What do you mean? The count had risen from his chair. Hortense, greatly excited, said, Are you really sure that there has been a murder and that the murder was done by someone belonging to the house? Quite sure. But why are you so certain? Because I know who the two victims were and what caused them to be killed. Prince Renin was making none but positive statements, and his method suggested the belief that he was supported by the strongest proofs. Monsieur d'Aiglerage strode up and down the room with his hands behind his back. He ended by saying, I always had an instinctive feeling that something had happened, but I never tried to find out. Now, as a matter of fact, twenty years ago, a relation of mine, a distant cousin, used to live at the Domaine de Halangre." I hoped, because of the name I bear, that this story, which, as I say, I never knew but suspected, would remain hidden forever. So this cousin killed somebody? Yes, he was obliged to. Renine shook his head. I'm sorry to have to amend that phrase, my dear sir. The truth, on the contrary, is that your cousin took his victims' lives in cold blood and in a cowardly manner. I never heard of a crime more deliberately and craftily planned. What is it that you know? The moment had come for Renine to explain himself. A solemn and anguish-stricken moment, the full gravity of which Hortense understood, though she had not yet divined any part of the tragedy which the prince unfolded step by step. It's a very simple story, he said. There is every reason to believe that Monsieur Degleroche was married, and that there was another couple living in the neighborhood with whom the owner of the Domaine de Halangre were on friendly terms. What happened one day, which of these four persons first disturbed the relations between the two households, I am unable to say— But a likely version, which at once occurs to the mind, is that your cousin's wife, Madame Degleroge, was in the habit of meeting the other husband in the ivy-covered tower, which had a door opening outside the estate. On discovering the intrigue, your cousin, Degleroge, resolved to be revenged, but in such a manner that there should be no scandal, and that no one even should ever know that the guilty pair had been killed." And now he had ascertained, as I did just now, that there was a part of the house, the Belvedere, from which you can see, over the trees and the undulations of the park, the tower standing eight hundred yards away, and that this was the only place that overlooked the top of the tower. He therefore pierced a hole in the parapet, through one of the former loopholes, and from there, by using a telescope which fitted exactly in the groove which he had hollowed out, he watched the meetings of the two lovers. And it was from there, also, that after carefully taking all his measurements and calculating all his distances, on a Sunday, the 5th of September, when the house was empty, he killed them with two shots. The truth was becoming apparent. The light of day was breaking. The Count muttered, Yes, that's what must have happened. I expect that my cousin, Degleroche, the murderer, Renine continued, stopped up the loophole neatly with a clod of earth no one would ever know that two dead bodies were decaying on the top of that tower which was never visited and of which he took the precaution to demolish the wooden stairs nothing therefore remained for him to do but to explain the disappearance of his wife and his friend this presented no difficulty he accused them of having eloped together hortense gave a start Suddenly, as though the last sentence were a complete and to her an absolutely unexpected revelation, she understood what Renin was trying to convey. "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'I mean that Monsieur d'Aigleroche accused his wife and his friend of eloping together.' "'No, no,' she cried. "'I can't allow that. "'You are speaking of a cousin of my uncle's. "'Why mix up the two stories?' "'Why mix up this story with another which took place at that time?' said the prince." But I am not mixing them up, my dear madame. There is only one story, and I am telling it as it happened. Hortense turned to her uncle. He sat silent, with his arms folded, and his head remained in the shadow cast by the lampshade. Why had he not protested? Renine repeated in a firm tone, There is only one story. On the evening of that very day, the 5th of September at 8 o'clock, Monsieur de Glaroche, doubtless alleging as his reason that he was going in pursuit of the runaway couple, left his house after boarding up the entrance. He went away, leaving all the rooms as they were, and removing only the firearms from their glass case. At the last minute he had a presentiment, which has been justified today, that the discovery of the telescope which had played so great a part in the preparation of his crime might serve as a clue to an enquiry, and he threw it into the clock case where, as luck would have it, it interrupted the swing of the pendulum. This unreflecting action, one of those which every criminal inevitably commits, was to betray him twenty years later. Just now, the blows which I struck to force the door of the drawing room released the pendulum. The clock was set going, struck eight o'clock, and I possessed the clue of thread which was to lead me through the labyrinth. Proofs! stammered Hortense. Proofs! Proofs, replied renine in a loud voice. Why, there are any number of proofs, and you know them as well as I do. Who could have killed at that distance of 800 yards except an expert shot, an ardent sportsman? You agree, Monsieur de Glaroche, do you not? Proofs? Why was nothing removed from the house, nothing except the guns, those guns which an ardent sportsman cannot afford to leave behind? You agree, Monsieur Deglarage, those guns which we find here hanging in trophies on the walls. Proofs? What about that date, the 5th of September, which was the date of the crime and which has left such a horrible memory in the criminal's mind, that every year at this time, at this time alone, he surrounds himself with distractions, and that every year, on this same 5th of September, he forgets his habits of temperance? Well, today is the 5th of September. Proofs? Why, if there weren't any others, would that not be enough for you? And Renin, flinging out his arm, pointed to the Count Deglaroche, who, terrified by this evocation of the past, had sunk huddled into a chair and was hiding his head in his hands. Hortense did not attempt to argue with him. She had never liked her uncle, or rather her husband's uncle. She now accepted the accusation laid against him. Sixty seconds passed. Then Monsieur Deglaroche walked up to them and said, Whether the story be true or not, You can't call a husband a criminal for avenging his honor and killing his faithless wife. No, replied Renine. But I have told only the first version of the story. There is another which is infinitely more serious and more probable, one to which a more thorough investigation would be sure to lead. What do you mean? I mean this. It may not be a matter of a husband taking the law into his own hands, as I charitably supposed. It may be a matter of a ruined man who covets his friend's money and his friend's wife, and who, with this object in view, to secure his freedom to get rid of his friend and of his own wife, draws them into a trap, suggests to them that they should visit that lonely tower, and kills them by shooting them from a distance safely under cover. No, no, the Count protested. No, all that is untrue. I don't say it isn't. I am basing my accusation on proofs, but also on intuitions and arguments which up to now have been extremely accurate. All the same, I admit that the second version may be incorrect. But if so, why feel any remorse? One does not feel remorse for punishing guilty people. One does for taking life. It is a crushing burden to bear. Was it to give himself greater strength to bear this burden that Monsieur Degleroch afterwards married his victim's widow? For that, sir, is the crux of the question. What was the motive of that marriage? Was M. Deglaroche penniless? Was the woman he was taking as his second wife rich? Or were they both in love with each other, and did M. Deglaroche plan with her to kill his first wife and the husband of his second wife? These are problems to which I do not know the answer. They have no interest for the moment, but the police, with all the means at their disposal, would have no great difficulty in elucidating them. Monsieur Deglaro staggered and had to steady himself against the back of a chair. Livid in the face, he spluttered. Are you going to inform the police? No, no, said Renine. To begin with, there is the statute of limitations. Then there are twenty years of remorse and dread, a memory which will pursue the criminal to his dying hour, accompanied no doubt by domestic discord, hatred, a daily hell, and, in the end, the necessity of returning to the tower and removing the traces of the two murders, the frightful punishment of climbing that tower, of touching those skeletons, of undressing them and burying them. That will be enough. We will not ask for more. We will not feed it to the public and create a scandal which would recoil upon Monsieur Deglaroche's niece. No, let us leave this disgraceful business alone. The count resumed his seat at the table, with his hands clutching his forehead, and asked, "'Then why?' "'Why do I interfere?' said Renin. "'What you mean is that I must have had some object in speaking. That is so. There must indeed be a penalty, however slight, and our interview must lead to some practical result. But have no fear. Monsieur Deglaroche will be let off lightly.' The contest was ended. The Count felt that he had only a small formality to fulfill, a sacrifice to accept, and recovering some of his self-assurance, he said, in an almost sarcastic tone, What's your price? Renine burst out laughing. Splendid, you see the position, only you make a mistake in drawing me into the business. I'm working for the glory of the thing. In that case, you will be called upon at most to make a restitution. Restitution. Renine leant over the table and said, In one of those drawers is a deed awaiting your signature. It is a draft agreement between you and your niece, Hortense Danielle, relating to her private fortune, which fortune was squandered and for which you are responsible. Sign the deed. Monsieur Degloros gave a start. Do you know the amount? I don't wish to know it. And if I refuse? I shall ask to see the Countess de Glerache. Without further hesitation, the Count opened a drawer, produced a document on stamped paper, and quickly signed it. Here you are, he said, and I hope... You hope, as I do, that you and I may never have any future dealings? I'm convinced of it. I shall leave this evening, your niece no doubt, tomorrow. Goodbye. In the drawing room, which was still empty, while the guests at the house were dressing for dinner, Renine handed the deed to Hortense. She seemed dazed by all that she had heard, and the thing that bewildered her even more than the relentless light shed upon her uncle's past was the miraculous insight and amazing lucidity displayed by this man, the man who for some hours had controlled events and conjured up before her eyes the actual scenes of a tragedy which no one had beheld. Are you satisfied with me? he asked. She gave him both her hands. You've saved me from Rossini. You have given me back my freedom and my independence. I thank you, from the bottom of my heart. Oh, that's not what I am asking you to say, he answered. My first and main object was to amuse you. Your life seemed so humdrum and lacking in the unexpected. Has it been so today? How can you ask such a question? I've had the strangest and most stirring experiences. That is life, he said, when one knows how to use one's eyes. Adventure exists everywhere, in the meanest hovel, under the mask of the wisest of men. Everywhere, if you are only willing, you will find an excuse for excitement, for doing good, for saving a victim, for ending an injustice. Impressed by his power and authority, she murmured, Who are you exactly? An adventurer, nothing more. A lover of adventures. Life is not worth living except in moments of adventure, the adventures of others, or personal adventures. Today's has upset you because it affected the innermost depths of your being, but those of others are no less stimulating. Would you like to make the experiment? How? Become the companion of my adventures. If anyone calls on me for help, help him with me. If chance or instinct puts me on the track of a crime or the trace of a sorrow, let us both set out together. Do you consent? Yes, she said, but... She hesitated, as though trying to guess Renin's secret intentions. But, he said, expressing her thoughts for her with a smile, you are a trifle skeptical. What you are saying to yourself is, how far does that lover of adventures want to make me go? It is quite obvious that I attract him, and sooner or later he would not be sorry to receive payment for his services. You are quite right. We must have a formal contract. Very formal, said Hortense, preferring to give a jesting tone to the conversation. Let me hear your proposals. He reflected for a moment and continued. Well, let's say this. The clock at Halangre gave eight strokes this afternoon, the day of the first adventure. Will you accept its decree and agree to carry out seven more of these delightful enterprises with me, during a period, for instance, of three months? And shall we say that at the eighth, you will be pledged to grant me... What? He deferred his answer. Observe that you will always be at liberty to leave me on the road if I do not succeed in interesting you. But if you accompany me to the end, if you allow me to begin and complete the eighth enterprise with you, in three months, on the 5th of December, at the very moment when the eighth stroke of that clock sounds, and it will sound, you may be sure of that, for the old brass pendulum will not stop swinging again, you will be pledged to grant me... What? She repeated, a little unnerved, but waiting. He was silent. He looked at the beautiful lips which he had meant to claim as his reward. He felt perfectly certain that Hortense had understood, and he thought it unnecessary to speak more plainly. The mere delight of seeing you will be enough to satisfy me. It is not for me, but for you, to impose conditions. Name them. What do you demand? She was grateful for his respect and said laughingly, What do I demand? Yes, can I demand anything I like, however difficult and impossible? Everything is easy and everything is possible to the man who is bent on winning you. Then she said, I demand that you shall restore to me a small antique clasp made of a Cornelian set in a silver mount. It came to me from my mother, and everyone knew that it used to bring her happiness and me too. Since the day when it vanished from my jewel case, I have had nothing but unhappiness. Restore it to me, my good genius. When was the clasp stolen? She answered gaily, Seven years ago, or eight, or nine. I don't know exactly. I don't know where. I don't know how. I know nothing about it. I will find it, Renine declared, and you shall be happy.